Last time we studied the subject of God's covenants with his people in the scriptures, we looked at the covenant with David and we saw how in the time of David, God fulfilled to his people in part some of the promises he had made earlier in former covenants. So he fulfilled the promise he made to Abraham that he kings would come from him. He fulfilled the promise he had made also to Abraham that he would give to his children the land in which Abraham was a sojourner. He uh, fulfilled in greater, uh, to a greater extent the promise, I will be your God and you shall be my people, because he established a new and better house among his people. That was in the times of David and Solomon, of course. And he fulfilled in part also the promise of rest. He gave to his people a rest from their enemies all around. He gave them a new house of rest. He gave to rule over them a man of rest, Solomon, the son of David. This time what we want to do is look at the new promises that God gave to his people in that covenant with David. And we're going to do that in a series of uh, studies beginning with 2 Samuel 7. That will be the subject of today's lesson. Then we'll look at Psalm 89. And finally we'll look at the rest of Old Testament history and prophecy with regard to this covenant with David. So uh, we're looking today at 2 Samuel 7. And this chapter relates especially, of course, to the promise that God had given to Abraham that kings would come from him. But it adds to that promise and shows the riches, some of the riches of grace that were implied in that promise to Abraham. The context here is that David wanted to build a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. And when he told Nathan the prophet about this desire, Nathan first approved it and said, Go and do what you desire. But later God came to Nathan and said, You have to go back to David and you have to tell him, You are not the man who is going to build me a house. God then forbade David to be the one to build the house and said to David that it would be his son who would build the house for him. So that's the context. But in that context in which uh, David wanted to build God a house and God told him no, God made a covenant with David. And it's that covenant that is described here in 2 Samuel 7. Before we begin to look at the details of the passage, there are a couple of notes that we should make. First of all, the word covenant does not appear in this chapter at all. But if you turn to Psalm 89 and look at Psalm 89 in relation to 2 Samuel 7, you will see that Psalm 89, while referring to many of the promises that God made to David in 2 Samuel 7 does speak of a covenant of God with him. 
And so it's right and proper that we should describe 2 Samuel 7 as God's covenant with David. Another thing we should note about this covenant that God made with David is that there was no sign associated with it. There was a sign associated with the covenant with Abraham, the sign of circumcision. There was a sign associated with the covenant with Noah, the rainbow. There was a special sign associated with God's covenant with Israel, the Sabbath day. But there is no sign associated with God's covenant with David. And perhaps that's because the kingship of David was itself such a visible thing that no sign was needed. Now, as we look at the um, verses here that describe this covenant, let's note in the first place that we have a section, verses 4 to 11, that is a kind of introductory section. And in that uh, introductory section, God first reminds David of the history the history prior to David's expression of his desire to build God a house. He says to David in verses 6 and 7, therefore, I did not command you to build this house. For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle, Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me, built me a house of cedar? So God says to David, I have not commanded. You may freely give up this desire. There's nothing here that is required of you with regard to this. I have not expressed any desire, in fact, in the past, or any commandment in the past, uh, about building me a permanent dwelling place. He also reminded David how he had exalted David from being a shepherd to being the king of Israel. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. And he uh, talks about how he had been with David throughout the years of his kingship. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. And he talks also about his promise to Israel of a place where they would be planted and where they would be free from the oppression of enemies. Verses 10 and 11. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I have caused you to rest from all your enemies. So the the Lord speaks of that promise of the land, which had been, if you remember from the last session, which had been fulfilled to David. It was under David that God had given to Israel the full extent of the land promised to Abraham. He had defeated David's enemies and the people of Israel's enemies, and he had established them in the land. 
that he had promised. It's at the very end then of verse 11 that the Lord begins to speak his promise, the promise of this new covenant with David. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now, that's a very interesting thing that God says there because in verse 5, David had said uh, that he wanted to build a house for God, or God had repeated David's desire, would you build a house for me to dwell in? And God says to him here at the end of verse 11, uh, you're not going to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. But notice that the references of that word house are different. When David wanted to build a house for God, he was thinking of a temple a place where God could live among his people. But when God says, I will build you a house, he's referring to a dynasty rather than a physical dwelling place. In the verses that follow, verse 11 then, God expands on this promise, this basic promise, I will build you a house. And there are five things that we can note in the expansion of this promise. First of all, he says, I will give you a son whose kingdom I will establish. So he has already actually established David in his kingdom, but he's promising David a son and a son who will have a uh, an established, that is a strong kingdom, free from the oppression of enemies and free from the threats of enemies. He will establish him a kingdom. The second thing he says is, he will build my house. So he's, he's telling David, not you, but this son whom I'm giving to you. The third thing he says, and this is a very striking thing, is I will be his father and he will be my son. And we're going to come back to that in a moment and and look more closely at that promise. That's a very important promise here. The fourth thing he says is, my mercy will not depart from him. In verses 14 and 15, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul whom I removed from before you. So he promises that his mercy will not be removed from this son of David. And finally, in the fifth place, he promises that David's house, his kingdom, and his throne will be established forever. Verse 16, And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now, You can see then, as God speaks these promises to David, that he's taking that promise that he had made to Abraham, kings will come from you, which has been fulfilled in his enthronement of David uh, as the king of his people, Israel. And he's now expanding on that promise that he had spoken to Abraham. He's adding new promises to that promise. So this covenant is a development of the promise, that specific promise, of the covenant with Abraham, that kings would come from him. Now this promise, 
uh, or these promises, which we're looking at here in 2 Samuel 7, were first of all, of course, fulfilled in David's son Solomon. It was he who built the house. We, we know that very well. But let's look, nevertheless, at 1 Kings 8, verses 13 and 20. Because Solomon himself, after he had finished building the house, and as he was dedicating that house to the service of the Lord, recognized the fulfillment of this promise. Solomon spoke, The Lord said he would dwell in the dark cloud. I have surely built you an exalted house and a place for you to dwell in forever. That's 1 Kings 8, verses 12 and 13. And then in verse 20 again, So the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, and I have filled the position of my father David and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and I have built a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And there I have made a place for the ark. So Solomon himself recognized that the Lord had in him fulfilled the promise he made to David. But the promise also was that Solomon would be the son of God and would uh, God would be his father. And of course, this has uh, nothing to do with physical begetting. Solomon was not the son of God by physical begetting. He was the son of David and Bathsheba. When God says of him, I will be his father and he will be my son, he's not either talking about the adoption unto sons, which we read about, for example, in Romans 8. We are all, as uh, people of God, adopted as sons in Christ Jesus. But God is not talking about that either. Instead, what he's talking about here is his exaltation of Solomon to the throne of Israel. You can see this idea of sonship in Psalm 2. When God speaks in the middle of that psalm, he says, uh, or when the anointed one speaks and describes what God says to him, he says this, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. So Solomon is the son of God in the sense that God himself has exalted Solomon to sit on the throne of Israel, the throne of his people. He represents God to the people and, in fact, to the nations around. He exercises the rule and judgment of God. He acts on God's behalf and is therefore filled with God's wisdom so that he may rule in God's name and according to God's eternal law. That's what it means when it speaks of him as the Son. He's exalted to the throne. Now, this is interesting in part, of course, because especially in those days, 
and into uh, the centuries that followed, in fact, many kings spoke of themselves, themselves either as gods or as sons of God. They claimed for themselves titles which were not justified. But here is a king who can actually say, I am the son of God. God said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. God exalted me to the throne. He doesn't mean then that he has uh, divine characteristics or that he is a God, but he means that God himself has exalted him to the throne and given to him rule on God's own behalf. The third promise that God made was that he would uh, establish and maintain his mercy with this son. And in fact, with many sons following Solomon as well. He maintained his mercy with Solomon, but he also maintained his mercy with his people and with the line of David for many centuries after and through many wicked kings, kings who did abominable wickedness, in fact. And he maintained that line of David all the way to our Lord Jesus Christ. And then God also promised that he would establish his throne forever. And that promise, of course, was fulfilled not in Solomon, but in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we recognize then that in 2 Samuel 7, God is uh, speaking his promises to David. In Solomon, he is fulfilling those promises in part. But those promises really point to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this adds a new dimension then to this uh, promise that God had given from the very beginning about Christ. Remember that in Genesis 3, verse 15, he had spoken of the seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. That is Christ. So Christ is the seed of the woman. As Paul also says in Galatians 3, verse 16. In the second place, Christ is the beginning of the new creation. The um, destruction of the old world and the flood and the creation of a new world that was given to Noah and his sons points us to the uh, new heavens and the new earth that will come at the last day. And Christ himself is the beginning of that new creation. So he's the seed of the woman. He's the beginning of the new creation. He is the promised seed of Abraham the son God promised to Abraham. Isaac was a part, uh, an incomplete fulfillment of that promise, but Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, the promised seed of Abraham. He's the one spoken of throughout the law of God as given to Israel at Mount Sinai, that is, throughout that covenant of God with Israel at Mount Sinai. He is the high priest. He is the Lamb of God. He is the temple of God. He is the one who cleanses the people from sin. He is the one who makes atonement for the sins of the people. 
He is all these things that were portrayed in the law. So he's the seed of the woman, the beginning of the new creation, the promised seed of Abraham, the high priest, the lamb of God, the temple of God. And now we find out that he is also the king, the promised king, the one of whom really God spoke when he said to Abraham, kings shall come from you, and the one who is being described here in 2 Samuel 7. He is the son of David, Matthew 1. The very first verse of the Gospel of Matthew begins with this. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. He is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. Remember uh, the words that God gave to John the Baptist to speak. Preach, he said, that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The words also that Jesus gave to his disciples to preach. Tell them the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is the beginning of the kingdom of heaven. David was the beginning of the earthly kingdom of God. But Christ is the uh, beginning of the heavenly kingdom of God. And he is the one who has become the king of nations, of all nations of the earth, in fact. Not just of those nations of which David and Solomon were kings, but of all the nations of the earth. But there's more here as well. God had promised that this son would build him a house. And that's exactly what Christ does. He is the one who builds the house of God in the New Testament. That is, the church of God. And in fact, in that house of God in the New Testament, we see the coming together of the two ideas of house that were presented here in 2 Samuel 7. David spoke of a permanent dwelling place for the Lord. He wanted to build that house for the Lord. And God said, I will build you a house. And he was speaking of Christ. And in Christ comes that permanent dwelling place of the Lord. He is the temple of God and he builds the temple of God as he gathers together the people of God from all nations. The the dwelling place of God and the house that God builds for David come together then in our Lord Jesus Christ. And God says of Christ, I will be his father and he will be my son. And this is true of Christ in a much richer and more glorious way than it was true of Solomon. We saw that it was true of Solomon in that God raised him to uh, the highest position among his people. But Christ is the Son of God, first of all, by eternal generation, as we call it. He is the second person of the Trinity, eternally begotten of the Father. He is God of God and light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. I think that verse in Psalm 2 refers, or at least has as its foundation, that eternal generation of the second person of the Trinity by the first uh, person of the Trinity. But it refers also to his incarnation. He is also Son of God according to his human nature, born by the power of the Holy Spirit of a virgin. And he is king from his birth. 
Remember what the wise men asked Herod when they came to Jerusalem looking for him. They said, where is he who is born king of the Jews? He was born king. He was not born a prince. He was born king. So God says to him, "Uh, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. But Paul takes that same verse in Psalm 2, where God says, you are my son. And in Acts 13, he quotes that verse with regard to the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is begotten again from the dead, raised to life by the power of God, and exalted to heaven to sit at the right hand of God forever. His throne then will be an everlasting throne. So we have uh, a fulfillment then in Christ of not only the promise to Abraham, kings will come from you, but also of these promises to David about that king in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And his rule, the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ, is universal, invincible, and everlasting. The nations rage against this king in vain. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from it. We see it in our day more than we have ever seen it before, I think. As men try to cast away the cords of Christ. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And with the Lord Jesus Christ, he maintains his mercy, not only for Christ himself, but for Christ's people, those who are in him. So that's the the covenant that God made. A covenant with regard to that the kings who would come from David, pertaining especially to David's son Solomon in the first place, but pertaining ultimately to our Lord Jesus Christ and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ as God's great king. In the rest of 2 Samuel 7, then, we have David's thanksgiving to God for these covenant promises. And we'll take just a few minutes to look at those words. They are found in verses 18 to 29. And the first thing that David says to God is, you have promised me a very great thing. You have made me king over your people Israel, and now you are promising me a dynasty, and an everlasting throne. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord, and he said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. And David's uh, thought about that, primary thought about that is, 
this is not the way that men deal with others. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? These promises are so great, so wonderful, so beyond expectation and thought of man, that David said, no man could ever do this or ever even think of doing this. This is not the kind of mercy, not the kind of exceedingly great and precious promise that men make. And then he says, in the next verses, you are great. There is none like you. Verse 22. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And because of that greatness of the Lord manifested in his exceedingly great and precious promises to David, which were, of course, also a great blessing to his people, David says, there's none either like your people. Verse 23 and 24. Who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and their gods. For you have made your people Israel your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. And note that reference to the promise to Abraham. You have become their God. And this is the promise which he has fulfilled to us in our Lord Jesus Christ as well. Who is like your people today? Like Israel, new Israel. That new nation whom God has created or begotten in the New Testament of Jew and Gentile from every nation and whom he has formed to be his people. Who is like that great people whom the Lord has called to be his own people? In verse 25, David prays that God will establish this word. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. In verses 26 and 27, he magnifies the name of the Lord for these promises. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And he concludes his prayer then with a prayer that God will bless the house of his servant. Verse 29. Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing let the house of your servant be blessed forever. These are exceedingly great and precious promises which God has fulfilled to us in his Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. And let us respond with the thanksgivings of David. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant, a great 
and the heavenly kingdom of which we shall be heirs. May God bless us with his word. Next time, God willing, we will be looking at Psalm 89.